You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, Dr. TPJ. Some of you call me, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Peace be with you. And welcome to all of you who are mothers and all of you who have been born of mothers. It's good to be with you uh, today. Now, sometimes I want us to understand something really important as part of this wonderful series that we've had on this beautiful church. As we get to this week, this idea of a beautiful witness, I want you to understand that sometimes what you most need to know isn't something new, it's to be reminded of something you knew already. What you need most sometimes is not to know something new, but to be reminded of a truth that you knew already. I need to take you back in my mind to fall of 1992. I was 19 years old and I had a decision to make. I had spent the summer, part of the summer, playing keyboards at a children's camp. And while I was there, I had met a young woman who was also a counselor at the camp and we'd become friends. And so for the past four months at this point in the fall of 1992, we'd been seeing each other every single week, just as friends and talking and getting to know one another. And I was at a point I realized that I had to decide what I was going to do. Because I had all sorts of dreams for my future. I was in two different bands, and one of those bands I just knew was going to make it big. Neither of them was going to make it big, but I didn't know that at the time. I thought one of these bands was going to make it really big. I was wanting to work at a church at some point. I was wanting to go get a master's degree, and suddenly in the midst of all these things I was dreaming about, there was this reality of this other person in my life and something was happening that looked a lot like dates and seemed a lot like love. And I was driving home from seeing her during that time and I was listening to the radio trying to decide, what am I going to do? And suddenly on the radio, there was this moment of profound and deep wisdom. These words came from the radio. Can't fight this feeling any longer. And yet I'm still afraid to let it flow. What started out as friendship has grown stronger. I only wish I had the strength to let it show. I can't fight this feeling anymore. Do you know the song? Okay, I see some of you in the back with your cigarette lighters going like this. I got it right there. There you go. We've got it. This song right here. This song comes on the radio. And in that moment, I become absolutely sure. Boom. This is it. This is it. Four months later, we were engaged. Two years later, we were married, okay? So within a couple of years after this. Now, I don't know what to do with this theologically. I do not recommend you make major life decisions on the basis of 80s rock songs. In fact, I've made some other decisions in my life on the basis of 80s rock songs. This was a good one right here that we made, but, but the other decisions I've made, every traffic ticket I've gotten has started with an 80s rock song, okay? I am speeding, and there it is. It was ACDC the whole time. But that's what happens when you do this. But this particular decision made a good was a good decision. It's lasted 30 years. And I, to this day, tell my kids 30 years later, yeah, 30 years we've been going on this. And I tell my kids, you have a family because of Jesus Ario Speedwagon. That's it. That's why you have a family. Our family exists because of Jesus and Ario Speedwagon. But here's what I want you to get in this. You know what? 30 years later, after I fret song came on almost 30 years after that, I cannot hear that song without being reminded of those opening months 
of when we begin to love one another. I just can't. I can't hear that song without thinking about that. There is zero power in that song, okay? There's like no power in that song. It's a cheesy 80s rock ballad. But every time I hear that song, I'm reminded of the beauty, the joy, the anxiety, the awkwardness, all those things that came. And sometimes when things aren't going really well, that song pops on and it reminds me of, yeah, this is good. (laughs) This has been a good three decades almost. Yeah, this has been good. And as I think through that, I I look at that, and I think most of us have that. Don't you have that? A certain song or a spot or even a scent, somewhere you may go, you may smell, you may hear, whatever it may be. It's just something that grabs in you, and you're reminded of some love from the past, and it comes back. It comes back. It comes back. It's important. There is a beauty And there is a power in being reminded of a truth you knew before. There's a beauty and a power in that. Sometimes what we need is not to know something new, but to be reminded of what we already know. Now, Paul knows that. Paul knows that very well as he writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's pure, perfect, and sufficient word. He writes these words and he begins this with saying, remind them. He's saying, but to this by them, but you know what? I'm not going to tell you something new. I'm going to tell you something that you actually already know. That's what he's doing. As we look at this passage, I was impressed when I looked at it really afresh during the past couple of weeks, how beautiful and rhythmic and poetic it is. It's like Ario Speedwagon. I mean, it's basically rhythmic, poetic, beautiful, everything like that. Like, can't find like this feeling except a lot better and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's got here seven characteristics that it starts out with of life in Christ, and then seven characteristics that you leave behind in Christ. And then after that, Paul proclaims the gospel. So let's dig into this text, and let's understand what Paul is reminding the people of then and what he reminds us of now. First off, he reminds them of how a beautiful witness lives. He reminds them first and foremost, and as I said, there's seven things he lists that characterize how a beautiful witness lives. Because often if we were thinking of a beautiful witness, we would think of some extraordinary event. We would think of something massive, some celebrity maybe who's being a witness, something like that. We would think of something big and extraordinary if we're thinking of what a beautiful witness ought to be. But look at what Paul says. He says it's about being submitted, obedient, doing good, blaspheming no one, not quarreling, kind, gentle, all of these ordinary things. Paul does not tell them that a beautiful witness is something extraordinary. It's the daily practice of very ordinary things. And that's what we begin to see in this text as Paul tells them this. Submit, obey, do good, don't slander, don't quarrel, be kind, be gentle. So let's look at each one of these. The one he starts out with is submit and obey, be submitted and obedient. And you may wonder, why does he start out with this? What we've got to recognize is that these letters, including this one, are written to particular people in particular situations and particular circumstances. And for the Cretans, this was a big deal. In fact, they were widely known, the Cretans were, for being people who did not submit to ruling authorities. In fact, the Roman historian Polybius, here's how he describes the Cretans. He says, Cretans are people who are always involved in rebellions, murders, and wars. 
So what does Paul start out with? Be submitted to ruling authorities and be obedient. Now, here's what that reminds us of. That although governments are distorted by sin and distorted by injustice, they are part of God's design even before the fall. They were part of God's design for there to be cultures and governments, all of those things. That was part of God's design even before the fall. And part of a beautiful witness is to live lives that are characterized by respect for the law. Now, that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that a government does. In fact, we have a certain times in Acts, for example, Acts chapter 5, that it's very clear that if the government calls you to violate the laws of God, you are to follow God and not the government. When they were confronted with this, they say, we must obey God rather than any human being. Not only that, it doesn't mean that we as people of God can't protest or call out injustice. It doesn't mean that. Acts chapter 22 is a very important text for understanding this. Let me explain what's happening in Acts chapter 22. There's a military commander who he goes and gets Paul. He brings Paul to the barracks for to be interrogated, and he ties Paul up, and he's getting ready to whip Paul. And in the midst of this, Paul says, already knowing the answer, he says, is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? Now, Paul is a legal, he's a, he's a Roman citizen by law. He's also an ethnic and religious minority. And he says this knowing that it is against Roman law for you even to tie up a Roman citizen. It's certainly against the law for you to flog or whip a Roman citizen. And Paul is not afraid to assert his rights at this point and say to this, this officer, are you sure that it's legal for you to do this? Knowing very well that the officer is doing something that is illegal. And he's arrested in a way that was unjust, using means that were illegal, and he holds the people accountable. In fact, when Paul is falsely accused, he takes it all the way to the highest court in the land, which the highest court in the land is the court of Caesar himself. And so when we say we are to respect the laws, it doesn't mean we can't protest or call out injustice, because Paul is perfectly willing to do that, but he does it when he does it, as a person of peace. He does it as a person of peace. And this truth runs so deeply in the history of Christianity and in the scriptures. It was, in fact, part of what Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired by in his nonviolent resistance. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s first book, Stride Toward Freedom, he says these words about it. He says, nonviolent resistance is courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. This love is a love in which the individual seeks not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's shaped by this ethic of understanding how to be a person of peace. And Paul then goes on from this to say, we are to be ready to do good, ready for every good work, ready to do good for others, and then goes on beyond that and says in some of your translations in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, or we might render that slander no one. If we were to take that a little bit more literally, it would actually be to blaspheme no one, not to blaspheme any human being. I want us to pause and think about that because we often think about blaspheming God. We understand that. We understand that some persons can blaspheme God through their words or their actions. But how do we blaspheme a human being? Well, here's what we have to remember. Every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being. 
And for us to treat any human being as if they are something less than the image of God is to blaspheme that person. And thereby, in some sense, to blaspheme God by the way we treat that person. He says in Genesis 1 that every human being is created in the image of God. And that image of God, what that means is that every human life is sacred. Every human life is sacred and human beings were created to share in God's reign and to live as his servants. We're sacred. So what does that mean for us practically? We see that image of God. When sin entered in the world, it was distorted, but it was never destroyed. Every human being is created in the image of God. Now let's dig into what this practically means. Spend a little time on this. That person on the other side of the counter that is not getting your order right, that you want to snap at, you want to, to say something back to, created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. The infant in the womb whom our world views as disposable, created in the image of God. The mother who feels like this is my only choice that I can make, I've been pressed to a circumstance that I feel like this is the only choice that I can make, that woman is in the image of God. Think of India right now. A missionary just this past few days reported this from India. Death is literally in the air, she said. I opened the veranda door of my apartment in Delhi this week and realized the sky was gray and thick, and then it hit me. Cremations, nonstop burning of bodies in my city that has overflowed into parks and parking lots has the sky full of ash, created in the image of God. And in so many ways, whether by ignoring, whether by not thinking about it, whether by reacting, we treat people as being something less than the image of God. And when we do, we blaspheme. We blaspheme person created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis once said that if you actually saw a person as God sees them, if you saw them as God's image, as God sees them, they would be so glorious that you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because of the reflection of the image of God in them. We must remember that every human being is created in God's image. And when we ignore that, when we treat a person as an object to satisfy what we want, or if we treat a person in such a way that they stand in the way of what we want, when we devalue them, we blaspheme. We blaspheme. We treat a person, degrade them on the basis of their race or their socioeconomic status. We blaspheme. We blaspheme. The world is full of blasphemy, isn't it? It is full of it. Let's dig into some places that may hurt a little bit. Think about the political leader you despise the most. Some of you are like, I've got a list. <laughs> I've got a list. For some of you, when I say that, you immediately think of person or persons on the political left, and some of you think people on the political right, okay? In sojourn, we're not about left or right or Republican or Democrat. We're about the kingdom of God. And there is space here for both of you. Okay? There's space here for both of you. But I don't care which side you look at, right or left, when you think about that, think of the person you despise the most and ask yourself, if I got to choose, would I rather that person be damned and condemned 
or redeemed and saved? Which one would I prefer if I got to make a choice? Think of the person in your life, in your past, who has hurt you the most. Would I rather that person be damned and destroyed or redeemed and saved? When I say that and recognize that those persons are in the image of God, I'm not saying for that person that hurts you that it justifies what they've done. I'm not saying that there's no legal or relational consequences to what they've done. I'm asking you if you have the choice, would you rather them be damned and destroyed or redeemed and saved? Which do you want? They are in the image of God, in the image of God. Remember that. Anything less is to blaspheme. It says in the second part of verse 2, to avoid quarreling, be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Gentleness, kindness, gentleness, kindness. There's this awful toxic idea that has worked its way into certain corners of evangelicalism. That to really follow God is to be manly, and to be manly is to be harsh and brash. That somehow when Jesus defeats Satan, the power he does it in is in a testosterone-fueled rage of some sort. That's a false and toxic and unbiblical idea. Because when we have Jesus describing what he is like in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, in his heart, he describes that he is meek, gentle, lowly. He's meek and gentle and lowly. That is who Jesus is. We don't need this idea of that we need to go out in the world as harsh and brash people. When Jesus defeats Satan, and he does, when he goes to war against Satan, he does so on and through the cross. When he was gentle, meek, and kind, and people want to point out always, but he flipped the tables over. Let me tell you something, two things about that. Number one, he did it once. Number two, he never asked you to do it. (laughs) He never commands us that we need to go do it as well. Everybody wants to be on the side of the flipping the tables. But Jesus never called you to that side of the table. He never called you to that. Gentle, meek, lowly, meekness. Understand, that doesn't mean weakness or powerlessness. Meekness is not weakness and powerlessness. In fact, one of the words that's used here for meekness and gentleness was a word that could be used in some circumstances to be able to describe the guiding of a horse. It's not saying the horse is weak. There's power there. It's to say its power is under control for the sake of a greater goal. It keeps its power under control. It's gentle and meek in the way It functions and works. Understand this meekness requires far more strength than harshness. Do you realize that? You have to be stronger to be gentle than to be harsh. And that's part of a beautiful witness. James K.A. Smith, a philosopher, speaks these words, and I think they're so wise. As a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be a confident, heresy-hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with my brilliance. As a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young, 
it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. When you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. Meekness requires gospel grit. Anyone can be harsh. Are you strong enough to be kind? Are you strong enough to be kind? And being kind doesn't change the truth. It doesn't diminish the truth. Instead, it transforms how we declare the truth so that we do so with kindness and gentleness. And these are the basic characteristics of being a follower of Jesus that he lists right here. And then Paul moves from these to remind Titus of the habits that a beautiful witness leaves behind. So we have seven characteristics at the start that gives that we should practice and then seven that we shouldn't. He says, for we ourselves, pointing to himself, Paul says, I was this way too. Verse three, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. Slaves to passions and pleasures, responding on the basis of what I want right here instead of thinking of others full of hate, both people hating me, hating others. Paul says, this is the way we all were. And he's calling them to step away from that. Step away from that life to be a beautiful witness. Now, let me tell you something. If Paul stopped right here, we should be, and I would be, crushed. Because here's the thing. I can't do this. (laughs) I can't do this. No matter how hard I try, you can't do this and I can't do this. We can't do what Paul is calling us to do. You can't do this in your power. Because honestly, just be honest, even if I don't blaspheme somebody with my mouth, it goes through my mind. There are so many times when I'm doing good things that I get so wrapped up in that I hurry to those things and I forget to be kind. I'm jealous at times envious. And that's also since I got up this morning. That's just since I got up this morning, I can list those things. We can't do this in our power. What we need most is precisely what Paul provides next. Hear these words in the midst of us feeling crushed by what we cannot do. Verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness we did, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is sure. Oh, praise God. (laughs) Praise God that he says, but God in his goodness and loving kindness. Just hear that. That is the gospel right there. That is the gospel. That it says God is good and kind. You see, we would often think that God, how can he be perfectly good? If he's really perfectly good and righteous, how can he be kind? Or if he's kind, how can he be good? But our God is both good and kind at the same time. Perfectly good perfectly kind, and he saves us. How? It says here, not by our works. 
There's no amount of justice we can seek, no amount of good we can do that can make us right with God. So Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but didn't. He died the death we should have died but didn't. And he was raised to death, to life from death. And he gives us all of his goodness for anyone who trusts in him. All of his goodness, he gives it to us. Here's what that means. If you've trusted Jesus, if you've turned to him to follow him, when God the Father looks at you, he does not see all of the ways you have failed to do all the things that Paul has listed. He doesn't see that. God looks at you and he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus who died in your place. And God can never think anything less of you than he thinks of Jesus. And God the Father declared what he thought of Jesus at Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what God thinks of you if you have trusted in Christ. When God looks at you, says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus has already done. And there are some of you, you have lived so much of your life. The mother, a father, a spouse, a friend who has always been on the lookout for everything you did wrong. And they have treated you in ways that no one should be treated. And they have called out constantly every failure. And because of that, you feel like God looks at you that way. That all God is doing when he looks at you is like that parent, that friend, that spouse, whatever it may have been, who always found exactly what you did wrong and focused on that. And they never saw anything else. And you feel like God's looking at me that way. Hear this. God never looks at you that way if you've trusted in Christ. Never. He sees only the goodness of Jesus. It is all that he sees in Christ. You are free. And God loves you no more and no less. When you do right, you do wrong. God loves you no more, no less. When you succeed or when you fall short. The worst that anyone can say about you has already been said about Jesus. The worst that can be done to you has already been done to Jesus. And because of that, you can be honest. And never does God look at you and say, I wish I hadn't saved that person. Never does God look at you and say, I'm embarrassed to be associated with that person. Never does God look at you that way because he already knew all that you had done and all that you would do. And because of that, when you fail, you can be honest and turn away from your failure, not because you're so great, but because he's so good. That is the truth of the gospel. And if you have never trusted in Christ, that is what we have in Christ in following and entrusting him. Every human soul wants this. There is not a human soul that though they may fight against it, though they may seem to hate it, that somehow deep inside under everything else, they know that this is true and they want it. This grace, because this is grace. If you don't believe me that every human being wants it, 
I have one phrase to prove you wrong, and that phrase is falcon and winter soldier. Just moment of silence for how amazing this was. Okay, falcon and winter soldier. Just, it was great. It really was. But in that, it is so clear, the human longing for grace. It's a parable of grace. The winter soldier throughout this, he is a list that he's marking off trying to make right everything that he has done wrong. He's marking it off one by one, trying to achieve some sort of righteousness in his power by righting all of his wrongs. But then he comes to a realization there are some things he did that were too horrific for him to fix. I can't fix it. And in the end, he goes to a man and he has killed, murdered this man's one and only son. And he doesn't try to fix it. He just confesses it. He says, I did it. I did it. And receives grace. He has no works to offer. Nothing that he can do to earn this man's favor. All that he can do is confess. And throughout the whole thing, there's this subplot of Sam who we shall refer to as the true and amazing Captain America. So Sam and his sister Sarah are trying to fix this boat, and they can't do it. And they try to do it in their own power without anyone else's help, and they try and they try and they fail, and they cannot fix it. There are too many problems and too many leaks for them to be able to fix it. And so in the end, they recognize their helplessness and cry out, (laughs) And a whole community comes to help, not because of what they've done or earned, but because of the family they belong to. That is a parable of grace. And the popularity of that and the way it resonates with us does so because of the fact that we all know we want that and we all know we need it. And it is precisely what God offers in Jesus. That's what God offers where you can't fix that, you can't mark out all the bad things you did. There are some things you've done. In fact, everything that we've done is too much to fix. And we need to cry out for mercy rather than trying to fix it ourselves. That is grace. That is grace. Then in verse 8, Paul says, this saying is sure. Now, this is a kind of a, a line, somewhat like when we say, Peace be with you and also with you, okay? That type of thing there, a liturgy line right there that probably means that these verses four through eight are actually part of a liturgy that they would repeat, a confession of faith. And so them saying this is a declaration that is a liturgy of how you should live. Like when the Mandalorian says, this is the way, this is the way. That's what it is. This saying is sure, this is the way. That's what he is stating right there as a way of declaring the truth, this is the way that we live. This is the way. So what do we do with all this? So much here. Here's the first thing I want you to get, is that a beautiful witness happens when the gospel of grace is adorned with goodness and declared with gentleness. That's what a beautiful witness is. When the gospel of grace is adorned with goodness and declared with gentleness. Second thing I want you to remember flows from that, and it's that a beautiful witness is both strong and meek. Jesus declared strong truths, but he did so with gentleness and lowliness and meekness and kindness. And anything less than that is not faithful 
to Jesus. That's why in verses 9 through 11, Paul says, if somebody consistently refuses to practice this way of life, if they're divisive, if they're hateful, if they're harsh, if that's a consistent way of life and they refuse when people try to correct them, he says they are self-condemned. They're demonstrating they may not actually be a believer in Jesus at all. And Paul doesn't say that lightly, nor should we, but he does say it. That somebody who lives antithetically against this, that they are probably not a believer in Jesus Christ at all. Wow. He didn't say it lightly, but he said it. And so should we. The last thing I want you to get is simply this. Grace makes good. Simply get that in your mind. Grace makes good. We live in a world in which it's the other way around. Good makes grace. (laughs) If you're good, I will give you grace, in which case it's really not grace at all. If you're good, I'll give you grace. But that's not God's way. God's way is an upside-down kingdom in which he doesn't say good makes grace. He says grace makes good. What I give you in Christ and through my spirit, God says, is what makes you good. (laughs) Not what you have in your power but what you have in God's power. So these are so similar to what we call the fruit of the Spirit because it's due to the Spirit residing in us, empowering us that we're able to do these things at all. The Spirit of God enables us to do in His power what we can never do in our own power. And that's why we don't say, Oh, God is good and God is kind, therefore I'll do what I want. Rather, we say, because God is good and kind, I want to do what is good and kind. Because God has transformed and changed us. And we will fail. We do fail. But it also transforms how we fail. Because since we know that our rightness with God is already sure and settled in Jesus, we can say, when we fail, I failed. (laughs) I messed up. I'm sorry. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to act like it didn't happen. We can correct what we have done, not because we earn God's favor through that, but because we have God's favor already. And we can say, I failed. I'm sorry. I did it. You don't have to hide it in Christ. You don't have to hide it. Here's what I want you to do this week. Something really simple, but really, really hard. At least one time this week, when you fail to be kind and meek and gentle, here's what we want to do usually when we fail. Oh, they pro- that person probably didn't notice. It wasn't a big deal. I probably didn't sound quite like I, I thought I sounded. Well, they deserved it. Those are the things we do. Here's what I want you to do. Sometime this week, when you are failing to be kind and gracious and gentle, go back to that person and say three phrases. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Jesus is still working on me. Can you say that? Let's try it. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Jesus is still working on me. You already said it once. If you said it here, you can say it there. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Jesus is still working on me. Some of you may think, what if I... Don't, at any time this week, become harsh or unkind. (laughs) We know you. We know you're going to. We already know this. We know this. You're going to. At least once this week, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Jesus is still working 
on me. And here's what you're going to find at that point. Grace is not easy. Grace is not weak. Grace takes grit. Grace takes gospel grit. Remember about 15 years ago, I had dinner with a man who deeply impacted the whole way I think in my life, Dallas Willard, written several books on discipleship. We were at dinner, and I made a statement in the midst of dinner, trying to sound like something greater. I was just trying to elevate myself in that and said something about what somebody really believes about Jesus. And Dr. Willard looked at me and he said these words. He said, you know, what you really believe about Jesus is revealed by what you do with Jesus once you realize you never had to do anything at all. 15 years later, I'm still chewing on those words. <laughs> I, still, I still am unpacking what that even means. But I know it means this, what we're talking about today. What you really believe about Jesus is shown by what you do with Jesus when you realize, I never had to do anything at all. What are you going to do with Jesus when you realize you never had to do anything? You simply received what he had already done. What are you going to do? That's the reminder that Paul gives to us. It's not something new. I'm not said anything that you haven't heard before. And Paul says, remind them. But sometimes what we need most isn't something new, but a reminder of what we already knew. And that's what we have. So be a beautiful witness. Put into practice what you already knew. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.